Hello, I'm Ace Colwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. Okay, so I'm going to start this week with uh, Length Matters, because Axios this morning issued a photograph of the Ford F-150 through the years. I want to post this to the to the Envoy notes, but it length is matters. showing the length of the truck bed yeah. compared to the cab. Yeah. And if this summarizes our attitude to work and vanity, I think this is it. But to your credit, it explains why you sought out a 1970s Ford F-150, because the truck bed is shrinking, but the luxurious cabin they're basically inverting places. You can't. Yeah. You can't carry. So regular bed isn't actually standard. There right? is nice. It's it's like I don't know medieval weights and lengths. It was just kind of by the That's whim of the king at the time. Uh, so yeah, my my truck bed. I have a standard bed, seventy eight F one fifty, and it fits my motorcycles in the back, and that's why I got it. So I haven't put a toolbox in it. It will shorten the length that I have to put motorcycles in the back. If I bought a new truck, I would have to grapple with the same, which is the truck bed is shorter. I wouldn't be able to fit my bike. So the metaphor for this generation is that we live in a world where trucks can't carry anything. Uh, yeah, carry I am. Um, I and I'm going to take a shot at a clothing brand that I I do actually wear. Um, but I, we were in London and I saw the Carhartt store, mm-hmm. and it was in a very uh, posh, I believe would be the term yeah. that you use, uh, corner of London, and the saying here particularly for those who live in slightly rural areas is everybody wants to wear carhartt until it's time to do carhartt shit and that's how i feel about truck uh, lengths as well yeah. so. another tell that branding's just branding is that carhartt in the united states is a very sort of working working person's clothing for being out on the farm or in the mm-hmm. factory and of course their branch in london is in <laughs> cranberry square st pancras next to google's headquarters uh yeah, yeah. anyway okay so we have a lot to talk about this week we do um but before we get there the sponsor for this week's episode i would is- i would like to dedicate this episode sponsored by vera gillespie vera has uh, weathered a full year with the firm which feels like a million given the pace of life here and the cantankerous two fellas that she works uh, for, with, around, or controls the puppet strings of, however you decide to look at that. But Vera Gillespie has uh, survived a year with Envoy, and shout out to V. And in the realm of her having a difficult life, while you were out of the studio, she popped her head in and said, I have access to this note that you two Muppets write your thing on. I've worked here for much longer than a year, you just don't realize it. <laughs> Which is So we got that wrong. So on the non-anniversary of Vera Gillespie working for the firm, this episode is brought to you by that. And our pointless plug of the week is for No-So Patches. We don't know the people of No-So Patches, but what I like about No-So Patches, which I found somewhere, is that they sell high-end patches so you don't throw your stuff away and you just, you know, sew. A uh, woman-owned company, I think out of Colorado. Yeah, it's, it's it, really cool. They're, uh, they're vinyl patches for like the uh, really high-end North Face and Patagonia gear that inevitably get snagged on the rock because you were you left yeah. your house um, and ends up with a <laughs> hole. And I've seen, uh, actually, you first put me on to just duct taping a oh, jacket back together, jackets, which, yeah. you know, like we spend time out and on the river and uh, yeah. around the trails. And so I looked up this link when you when you posted it for fodder for today. And it's really cool. They're like well designed. You can get them in an X or a heart or another shape, and and then you use a blow dryer to set the patch, and it's permanent. And look, so unpaid unpaid promotion. Don't no throw so your stuff away. No so patches. No so patches. Dot com, or I don't know. Google it. So uh, this has been a heavy week. It's been a heavy week in the United States with uh, not news of, uh, but the full awareness of. Uh, 
the the killing of Ty Nichols and the build-up to the release of videos. Uh, I almost feel we had the response to the videos before the videos were released. Where's your mind with all of this? Oh, um, kind of twofold. It, it uh, unfortunately is so common that we are inundated by effectively snuff films. I mean, we, we see them enough at this point. Yep. Um, so I both feel nothing and everything um, as a black man in America. That's that's kind of where I am. It, I wasn't surprised. But I, I am, um, for the first time, and this is beyond George Floyd and beyond Breonna Taylor, and like this one feels like we were on this release cadence or uh, almost like leading up to a premiere of a movie. Yeah. Like it felt... Uh, more pointed and um, like the rest of the world realized that this is what that type of video looks like, like the footage and the experience and more so than anything I've seen before. It felt like everybody, every time I've opened a news article, it starts with watch the video, the 20 some minutes of Tyree Nichols um, being, being just beat on by the cops. And uh, like, that's, that's not new. Um, for me, and so I'm I'm sitting in an experience that feels regular and shouldn't, and I think uh, numb to that, which shouldn't be the case either. Yeah, this is the first time that I've had messages from friends overseas, non-Americans, who were recognizing institutionalization of the problem by the nature of the race of the police officers. Can we just also say for a minute when you when you call a unit? the scorpion unit mm -hmm. like talk we talk about priming a lot mm -hmm. um the the implicit license you give just through the name of a unit we could call it the number number 27 unit we could call it the community engagement unit but scorpions um i think the other bit that has struck me has been back to your piece around i had written before this week's events mm -hmm. around around writing about american desensitization i think i added that to yeah. my notes last monday and watching the number of, of my black friends and acquaintances, sorry, my outraged white friends and acquaintances talking about the videos and the number of my black friends and acquaintances who are saying, I'm not watching the videos. Mm -hmm. um, just back to that point, and there's some amazing research from the University of Oregon that if I can find it, I'll put it in the link, which is about our ability to empathize with people who are from a different demographic from us. And it's actually research around humanitarian aid and whether people donate to charities that are helping people in war zones and famine and the like. But I think the lessons here are very similar, which is it is very, very hard for somebody in the United States who is of my uh, skin tone to imagine being in that situation just because it's so, so absolutely rare. Yeah. And that we have to sort of Either double down on the work or just assume you can't, you can't relate. One of the ways that I relate is because I'm a parent every time there's a school shooting. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that feeling that I have there is the feeling that black friends and acquaintances are feeling right now. That, that's the only way I can get to that point because this is not the relationship that I have at all with law enforcement. Um, and yeah, and then I just want a more observation is... And this might be coincidence, but the, quote, speed of justice with which this has been responded to relative to those where the um, the uh, officers were white is noticeable. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, there's been a lot of conversation around the the um, Chief Davis uh, being black, and then of course the five officers who have been let go um, from Memphis PD um, also being black, and uh, I, I think quite a bit to unpack there. The the police chief, and I, I won't go deep on this, but I will note that the police chief came from Atlanta um, where she had a similar unit that she put together and there were just, uh, there were a couple professional pieces from her past that would certainly corroborate what has happened now and what we're grappling with. And so uh, there, there's the first piece. The second is kind of history of policing and Policing in America is predicated on returning enslaved people to their owners. Right? Like that's that's the foundation by which we have built a police force. And so, mm -hmm. folks were deputized to literally go round up enslaved people. They were rounding up slaves, bringing them back, and they had uh, that was justice, and that's what we were doing was protecting property at the time. Um, so, all of the protection of property when we see riots, well, yeah, that's what policing was predicated on. Yeah. The uh, the brutalization of black men in this country, black people, particularly men in this country, well, yeah, that's what policing was predicated on. And so, um, yeah, it, we ought to be better, sure, but this is the foundation upon which we have built our our police system and so that to that end it's not surprising it's awful i think that's worth emphasizing with um our listeners who are not from the united states is that the the baseline and the premise of the foundation of the police in the united states is that which is not the same with police forces and gendarmeries around the world i'm not saying it's unique but it, i can't think of another country where that was the sort of the birth story of yeah. of law enforcement was around that um rather than uh whatever individual tale it is yeah. um the yeah yeah okay all right. Um, but back to this idea of American desensitization and whether it matters for the world. Just a reminder, we also had two mass shootings last week, mm -hmm. which by today we've completely forgotten about. Um, that the, was last week. That was last week. Oh. That, was, that, was, that was after last week's recorded radio. Yeah. And I'm sort of throwing this out. I'd like to talk about this more in a future episode. But what are the ramifications of America very naturally becoming desensitized to this. So this is not a unique national phenomenon. It's that if you, it's sort of the reverse of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? You're being exposed to a thing, so you fear it less, you, mm -hmm. you have less of a response where well, we are being exposed to, the numbers are just staggering in terms of this year, the number of mass shootings. I'm sure somebody will message and tell us what that, that is after we post this. But what are the ramifications, not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world, if America becomes desensitized to, um, experiences like this yeah what is that what are we willing to go through uh, especially as we're staring down the taiwan straits and we're looking across uh the the crimean uh peninsula as we go through so maybe we'll talk about maybe we'll pull in some foreign policy people and some social workers and yeah that'd be uh, that would make a lot of sense all right okay um Actually, just staying with Ukraine for a minute, we talked about tanks last week. Oh, my God. Schultzing, oh, yeah. Schultzing has become moved. a verb. Have you heard of that? <laughs> so Schultzing is now a verb. Schultzing means that you um, avoid making decision for as long as possible while making statements that make it seem like you're making decision and then finally make the decision but don't get any credit for it. So Chancellor Schultz has gone ahead and given permission for uh, other countries to export uh, German tank technology to Ukraine and for the Germans themselves to donate some tanks 
But um, endless foot dragging goes with the execution of that decision and none of the gains of making the decision. So he has upset his uh, pacifist domestic population. I fully understand the, the, the um, pacifism movement in Germany. He's upset that domestic constituent and upset the constituency that seeks to invest in Ukraine and upset international relations and probably the export of arms industry going forward as well. So but that, that upset is, not is what the, uh, the, the matter of two weeks Right, yeah. like that time Timing. function. Timing. If he had made the same decision two weeks prior, everybody would laud him. The as, one factor right? that yeah. we struggle with constantly when we're running exec ed sessions and people are looking for the perfect versus the optimal decision. This is a great case study because he may have landed at the perfect decision, but one can argue the time that he took. We never measure time as a variable. The mm -hmm. time that he took made it actually suboptimal. They, yeah. they missed the window. So who knows? That may appear in an exec education class coming up near you. And we're we're sending tanks too. We are well, yeah, well, well. So this was sort of a, this was kind of a clever negotiation. Yeah. Uh, so the decision of the Americans. So Chancellor Schultz had said that they would only go forward with the Americans, mm -hmm. and so the United States has committed in the long term to send Abrams, but not existing Abrams. They are going to be constructed from New. scratch. They have to be manufactured. So mm -hmm. by the time these things land. Um, they're mm -hmm. also stripping them of the um, there's special Some super the, super secret armor right, that they right. have and a couple of other things. Uh, so we'll see. But um, so 31 modified M1 Abrams from the U.S. Yes. are being built. Being built. To send to they're Ukraine. being built to be sent. So yeah. we may expect them sort of late this year. And my guess on this uh, would be, and it is a completely uneducated guess, is that the Poles have those leopards in there in no time. They they have a huge self interest in doing this. Uh, the Ukrainians landed in the UK yesterday to start their Challenger 2 training, so they sh shouldn't be far behind. But just a reminder, the UK doesn't have many tanks at all, mm -hmm. um, since this is now the tank show, apparently. This is the tank uh, show. And, um, yeah, and that Germany will find a way to it, – it, it's a huge loss for Germany because they truly are spending um, – they're probably the second biggest donor to Ukraine and gaining none of the credit because of the style of the, of the delivery of the materials. So maybe this is working domestically. Maybe we invite a uh, – a German politician on to talk about domestic politics and how that works. Find yeah, that'd a be great. Politician. Okay, and on Envoy Tank Radio. There uh, we go. A German politician will be. Joining. I used to play rugby against a guy whose nickname was Tank, and it hurt. The, the, so I could see that. Hey, yeah. you had something on here about doing nothing is doing nothing is doing something. The theory of the leisure class. What does that mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of in the context. I think we talked last week about just like not having space to not um, or being yeah. being exhausted and uh, fatigued um, and so I, as this continues to come up the concept of fatigue we talk about rest kind of as the solve for fatigue and uh, I find that we in perhaps Western society don't rest particularly well right like there's all of the so we leisure versus rest well so the 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 theory of the leisure class is a book Thorblen Venblen Somebody you just will look that, that up. I might have made, made that up. up. Yeah, yeah, but you're going to Google it, and I'll be pretty close. You'll know what I meant. Um, Th Thorblen Venblen um, wrote the theory of the leisure class and talks about the social stratification of society. Um, and so you've got farmers, and you've got warriors, and you've got you know all of these people with with jobs and tasks. Thorstein Veblen. Ah, Thorblen. Thorstein. Yeah. <laughs> 
Venblen, though. I got that part right. Got his, I just speak of Venblen. I don't anyway, actually know his first name. Yeah, so oh, the theory. 1899 he wrote this book. Yeah, he oh, wrote okay. it like ways right. back in talking about. So we can't about, offend him. He's dead. Yeah, well, <laughs> there we go. Right. He's, he's got his people around, his hitters. Um, so, yeah, the, the theory of the leisure class is that. Um, Doing nothing is reserved for the the top of that social yeah. stratification, yeah. and everybody else has a task, a job, and so rest isn't built in. You've got farmers, and they farm, and warriors, and they do war and stuff, right? Uh, whereas uh, we look to the top of this social class, and we say, oh, the people up there just get to sit around and eat grapes and figs and think. Um, but that is where the progress of society comes from, is kind of what he posits, is that the thinking leads to art, leads to philosophy, leads to literature, and those are the things by which humanity moves forward. And so we actually have to have this space to do what looks to those who just toil and don't know anything else like doing nothing. But it, that nothingness is actually the foundation by which we build and we think and we create and we move forward. And so um, doing nothing is not nothing. It is actually creating space to make progress and be creative. And so it's, it's something. And we ought to make more space and but, time for but it. But you're saying actually doing nothing. Like like carving out nothing. Because when you described sort of the leisure class, I immediately imagined <laughs> when I first moved to the South was iced tea on the porch, mm -hmm. which looks like the most relaxing thing from the outside, is the most exhausting. They all have, I'm not going to say you because you're pretty much a Yankee. They all have all of these processes, how the damn sugar, who pours what, who sits where. Like, you're beat by the end of it. You you're need to describing go for tea, for tea with your people. No, it's tea. No, it's, tea. it's iced tea here. It's but it hot is interesting, isn't it? Because in Abrahamic religions, the Sabbath is a day of, of rest and worship. But it's, it was meant to be truly rest. Like, you don't do it in that almost sense of you literally don't do anything. Yeah. yeah. To, to but but I, I want to, like, stay on this for a second because Garage Day yeah. for us was supposed to be nothing. Right? To everybody else, that's Garage Day. Yeah. So Garage Day. <laughs> Is. But we invited, we, we decided, yeah. we have a motorcycle shop here. I think it's a shop now. Um, and it's we also, decided. It's also a garage, not a shop. He doesn't sell motor. It's very confusing speaking to. He, <laughs> we don't sell motorbikes from here. No, it's, but you work they, on they them They use in a the shop, shop as where you work. No, that is where you work. No, a shop is a store. No. Anyway, so there's this building at on a compound here that he keeps his old non-functioning motorcycles in and a beer fridge. You didn't have to very do that. It's one of those old Pepsi fridges. It's a full cool fridge. Yeah. And... I'm sorry, you were telling us. Well, no, but did we... You did you feel talked over? <laughs> <laughs> You're not finding your voice. <laughs> I, I have plenty of voice. It's my Barry Manilow voice. Um, yeah, so we we decided we were just going to sit in the, the garage, is that how you say it? Yeah, garage. The garage yeah. all day and do nothing. We were yeah. going to play dominoes or dice and like yell at clouds and just be cantankerous yeah. old men. Um, and it turned into... A strategy day, not because we were trying to work. I, I don't think it was because we couldn't unplug. It was just because we sat and yeah. didn't dive into email and didn't like try to do. And we ended up just talking about the state of the world, the state of the firm, the things we wanted to accomplish, what might be interesting, what might be fun. And I'd say five or six of the things we've discussed have come to fruition over the last year just because we made the space to, to be intentional about not trying to do so we started to build, and I thought that was cool. So uh, the theory of the leisure class, do more nothing. It's, uh, it's good for you. My One of the greatest days of my life, I can say this because the kids don't listen to this, uh, is not the birth of my children. 
we, they, that's pretty high up. But um, the, the other one that might be slightly higher was... Uh, so Glenn Turner might be listening to this. So okay. so Glenn Turner is an old friend of mine from, from back home. And we went on... Oh, God, we were probably 18 and 19. We went on a, one of these horrific camping trips to France where you get on a coach, you're on a, you're on a bus for like 14 hours, you go to the south of France, and there's a, a pre-built tent there for you. It's cheap as hell. And then you drink and you like play football and volleyball with... with German lads and Dutch guys and stuff and it's pretty horrific debaucherous and a lot of fun anyway one morning when we were very hungover we crawled our way to a cafe it's sort of that sort of stereotypical French cafe overlooking the beach <laughs> and for some reason he said to me um, we we're at, we were having coffee and he said I bet we can't stay here all day and not one who is short to you know take up a challenge I said yeah all right let's see and so we didn't we didn't have mobile phones or anything and we just sat for the whole day at this uh, at this table, and guys would come up back and forth, but it was it was absolutely brilliant. Like, truly, nothing to do. So you found yourself sitting there in silence, and one of us would say, "Did you see that seagull?" Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was going to bank left. So did I, and then it banked right at 25 degrees. And I thought if it was going to bank right, it would be at 29 degrees. And the day went on like that. And yeah, anyway. Nobody's listening now. I know. I so this reminded me of. I was I was looking it up. Um, a guy. Um, have you played fantasy league? I, no. I I don't play fantasy anything, but I have a bunch of buddies who do. Um, this is American football fantasy fantasy football. Yeah, but I think you can, you can probably play fantasy yeah, footy as well. Um, so uh, fantasy rugby, if How you care do to. Any of these things, like I. It's like know. video games. Like, or just go play. You can either <laughs> you can either play F- FIFA, whatever it is, or just get a ball and go. Anyway, so, yeah, and and then you're going to yell at those kids to get off your lawn. I'm sure. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so no, uh, uh, a guy played fantasy league and he lost, and he had to spend 24 hours in a Waffle House for losing. <laughs> <laughs> One that's entirely your humor, but. Uh, in order to, <laughs> I love that. So he he has to here. eat two waffles to shave an hour off his time, so he could <laughs> eat forty eight waffles. <laughs> get out of there and get out. <laughs> this is hilarious. So that's his this. punishment for losing. So he, hang on, he loses. the 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 punishment is forty eight hours in a waffle. Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours. In a and the only house. way you carve it off, you is can you take an hour waffles. off per two waffles that you eat. <laughs> Which is, I am so <laughs> in with this bet. This hilarious. is brilliant. It's hilarious. So I think he ended up eating like eight or ten waffles. Um, so he, he shaved uh, or eight <laughs> or ten like double stacks over the course of his 24 hours. So he shaved eight or ten hours off, All but right. he had to spend, I don't know, 12, 14 hours there. So uh, hilarious. Hey, anyway. talking about punishment. So yesterday, uh, finally, Rishi Sunak, the prime minister of the UK, fired uh, Nadim Zahawi, excuse me, Nadim Zahawi who uh, was the chairman of the Conservative Party, but prior to that was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so finance, finance minister. minister. Yeah, yeah finance. Yeah. Um, for, for basically not paying his taxes mm. and covering it up and suing a whole bunch of journalists who were doing it. And so I don't want to get into that stuff. You can read about that. But one thing that was interesting is his letter of resignation to... So what, what happens is you sort of, you're told you're being fired and you, you get the chance to resign. But his letter, he didn't apologize at all. Like took he he was just sort of mm. like nope, <laughs> just he was just a spat. So I'm just parking this thought: Is it important to say sorry if you're in a, in a if you're in a public position and you're caught? Is it important to say sorry? 
I don't think so. Uh, also, I'm in the UK and uh, the Netherlands this week, uh, which I think is a stark reminder. It's it's the chance. What you do is you go to the UK and then you go to the Netherlands, and it's the way of the Netherlands reminding you what a well-run country looks like <laughs> as everything runs on time and is calm. Uh, but, um, yeah, as we navigate the trade, so there are huge rail strikes happening in the UK. This week there are being ongoing huge public sector pay strikes. And the government is, is essentially taking a strategy of not negotiating. Maybe they're secretly negotiating. I really hope they can. Just a reminder, one can't not negotiate. It's just not a thing. It yeah. doesn't work that way. Okay, you had on some, something on here about the... Um, I want to talk about de-escalation in a minute. Because oh, yeah. lots of the things we've been talking about this week yeah. inadvertently has been about escalation. Uh, but you want to talk about the, the preciousness of the left. <laughs> This isn't going to upset any of your fans, eh, Scott? Oh, Preciousness. Okay, God. here we go. Uh, Harry, no. can we get a meme ready? Just but, get it ready to go. But it's it, it's in line with apologizing and de-escalation and uh, just some of the threads that we touch on pretty regularly. I find that those who share my politics, I am pretty left-leaning and, and care about the... Let's just be clear, left-leaning by U.S. standards. By U.S. Okay. standards, sure. Um no, I, I find I find that those who share my outlook on things, I, I'm I'm struck as we've done some of our negotiation sessions and our de-escalation sessions over the past probably two or three years. I find that the folks who get most prickly around we have a phrase you can be right or you can make progress. <laughs> I find that the folks who get most prickly are those who are ostensibly uh, for social justice and for moving things forward and for progress. And and those folks very much align with, I align with those folks generally. Uh, but I find the folks who are uh, most hardline about not conceding are those who tend to lean toward my direction. And you are going to be so unpopular, but I know exactly what you, we, we see a, a, it's a, a it's shimmer, a, running theme. a frisson in the audience of uh, people who dress in a way that would signal that they're of a particular what we in the US we call a liberal persuasion. Sure. Really struggling with this idea of you can be right or you can make progress that I don't see on the right. Yeah. Because yeah. there is there is a hard line on so many social things that we're having conversation about. Um, abortion, pronouns, uh, LGBTQ um, rights in, in general, um, how we think about policing in America. And we draw this hard line and partly that hard line, like, that hard line tactically is to draw people closer to it as we are making uh, as we are making progress. But I find that it is used as an absolute uh, no compromise line. That's not actually how they're designed, right? If you're thinking about tactics of aggression and of war and of the battlefields on the social front that we are fighting through. Um, yeah, there, there aren't hard lines, really, yet we draw them socially and then uh, lambast anyone who deigns to be on the wrong side of it. And that's not actually how we move things forward. So that's a great segue for me talking about the next mini book that we're writing, ah. uh, which is under the working title of the, uh, let me get this right, the, the Manslaughter of Nuance and the Murder of Context. And oh it's, very much in this, it's very much in this vein. It's, it, it will be written in 120 characters, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's it. Just a tweet. It is, it is all about uh, bias isolating issues and stripping away its context and nuance. We can come up to the most unfounded answers and, and escalate conflict. Mm -hmm. But the one of the things I'm interested in would welcome people sending their thoughts and comments is where we have inherent contradictions in statements 
and not that there's a contradiction, but that we're not willing to own it. So some things would be like, all, all opinions are welcome at the table. And anytime I see somebody say that, it is very clear that if you appear with a certain type of opinion at the table, you are not welcome at said table. Um, including the opinion, I don't believe all, all opinions should be welcome at the table, right? There's a bit of a trap there as it goes Yeah, the, the exclusion <laughs> requisite to be inclusive, right? Yes. Like, but that yeah, is yeah, tension. Yeah. And if you tweet one thing, which is everybody should have a voice, you've drawn a hard line. And if you tweet that some people shouldn't have a voice, you've drawn another hard line. But but in order to be inclusive, you actually have to exclude some folks who have the rabid opinions who don't of believe in inclusion extremity. And so <laughs> you have to be able to not only own but articulate the why that makes sense. There are some views that don't allow us to move an inclusive space forward, and therefore we have to exclude some views to be yeah. inclusive. There is an ability and a way to articulate that, but we've distilled so many of these statements to the bare minimum. We don't leave space to have that nuanced conversation. There, we've, we've got to this very sort of binary thing, yeah. either one way or the other. And, you know, there's a few out there. I mean, another example would be believe survivors and innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And they're both very, very great concepts and well-meaning and have terrific intent. They stand in absolute contradiction with each other. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about the contradiction. We don't talk about the tension. And there is another option. Um, I believe the French legal system, I'm actually friends with lots of French lawyers, I'll be corrected about this within microseconds, that <laughs> um, the French ju uh, justice system is premised on under not you're innocent until proven guilty, but you're guilty until proven innocent. Mm. Uh, there are ways to sort of institutionalize these some of these things and close these gaps. I think that's the case. Somebody will correct me. Um, but but yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Anyway, the mans what did I say? Manslaw of nuance and murder of, of context or vice versa. I'm not sure which we're well, manslaughtering yeah. versus murdering. Yeah, but, uh, but examples of that and some pathways and solutions forward. Would so be to be clear, you wrote that title before you knew that that's almost the verbatim title of one of my rants about the death of nuance. And so, Is it really? Yeah, I don't no, know. It's almost like you should we write should a write book. a book or something. I don't really yeah. have time to write a book. There okay. we go. Uh, De-escalation. So we've been doing a lot around this recently. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a sign of the times. Uh, we had talked about DEI programs being an indicator of economic recession. Yeah. And I think uh, requests for conflict resolution and de-escalation trainings are a sign of the state of the world that we're in and, mm -hmm. and demand is through the roof at the moment. But I, I did want to post a graphic with our Envoy note this week of an escalation cycle. And there's a point we were making last week with, with a group of... Um, Historians, actually. Historians yeah, and, and cool. museum leaders. It was great. It was a really great session, which is that escalation and de-escalation don't follow the same path. And I think we assume because it's sort of the same word reverse that you're following a reverse path. Escalation is all about perception and about somebody's intent. And so essentially that you follow a cycle where a what the initiator feels is a neutral statement mm -hmm. is perceived by the other side as a threat and their defensive move is perceived by you after making that neutral statement as offense. So I say a neutral thing to you. Yeah. You hear that as inflammatory or incendiary. Uh, you respond accordingly to what you heard, not what I said. Yes. And this seems like I'm going at you, relitigating something. Um, <laughs> and, and to, to which end, I feel that you've now attacked for no reason, yeah. and I'm throwing stuff back at you. Now, this the, the piece that I had done a poor job in expressing in the past mm. that I think we haven't, is that the escalation cycle is something 
that is called a positive feedback loop, mm -hmm. as in it starts to power itself. Mm -hmm. So you see positive feedback loops in all kinds of science and audio engineering. If, if Perry opens up the wrong mics here, we'll create a positive feedback loop where we're getting that echo that's recording on a microphone. Mm -hmm. Well, that's quite a good analog for what happens with escalation is that we're reaching a point where we're simply not, we are hearing, but we are hearing something different from what's being said, mm -hmm. and it is magnifying and, and carrying on its way. This applies in international affairs, but it also applies in human to human. But de-escalation, mm -hmm. there is not a positive feedback loop around de-escalation. Our human defensiveness doesn't mm -hmm. lead us to go, oh, well, I noticed he opened his hands and that's warm body language. Now I'm going to naturally open my hands. Or you have to force it through. Mm -hmm. You have to positively look for signs of de-escalation and then almost magnify what you're doing so that it gets through the chatter yeah. of that highly emotional uh, fight or flight adrenaline running through your veins. And yeah. Oh, future session. We're going to pull in Alan Dow. Uh, Alan oh. Dow, MD, Alan as Dow, we'd say MD. here. Uh, which I Dr. Professor Dow. Dr. Professor Dow. We're going to talk about the fight or flight and what actually happens in the stomach and the mind and how that affects us all. Mm. Anyway, we're going to post that. Escalation, de-escalation, not the same thing. Uh, take the lift instead of the escalators. I love it. I'm looking forward to having Dr. Dow on the... Oh, thanks for just much, a, He's a learned man. It just smells like uh, leather-bound books when he walks in a room. All right. What's next? I'm out. Oh, I will. I will leave you. Can I leave you with a weird dream that I had? I, when you ask we like that, have, the answer should be no. We might have to kill this because it might come across as I'm incentivizing violence. Oh. But I'm not. Tell me I'm more. not. It was just a dream I had. So my dream... This is what a nerd I am about our field, is I dream about social policy and lobbying <laughs> and negotiation. What do you dream about? I don't make this about me. <laughs> Tell us about your dream, weirdo. So it was this. It, it was related to the shootings last week. Okay. And uh, whatever regulation we might want around firearms, because I think the California shootings are interesting because there are a lot of regulations around California. But the point of this isn't that. It was my dream. It was that there was a... My dream was there was a... A Marine or Army marks, marksman, it was a male, whose child had been shot in a, in a school shooting. Mm -hmm. If anybody wants to write this book, feel free. Um, and he, he started shooting board members of the NRA, but just flesh wounds. So do you remember the sniper that was in D.C. Yeah, years ago? I, I and do. you didn't know it was that. coming. And it created, I lived in Washington, D.C. It was the most bizarre Chaos. period that yeah. people at gas stations were being shot by. So, but that it was, but essentially it was mess. And nobody could catch him because it was completely randomized. And he was a professional in this field. Mm. I had this, well, it was like watching a movie. And it didn't end, but it was like, it was back to this idea of desensitization. I think this is what was on my head. It was that his goal wasn't to murder anybody. His goal was to make them feel mm -hmm. the issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I'm not saying this, is, this should be done at all. Let me just, on behalf of my general counsel, just keep me out of jail. This is not a thing. But it is back to this, and maybe this is a theme of, of how, do we, how do we make ourselves sensitive to the consequences of our actions? Um, and at this point, every ex in my life will be like, yes, if only you had done that. Um, but how do we... How do we do that so that we can bring our choices a little closer to us of these of these consequences? Hey, uh, yes, yes. Uh, I think next week we'll jump into another thread on consequences, uh, consequences of innovation. We'll, we'll talk about that, but it, it's it's uh, similar. Are we going to do that whole AI and robots thing? No, no, oh, that's actually okay. not. It's it's not where it goes. It's more in the vein of. Um, 
um, SBF and oh, uh, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes. And yeah. well, uh, we can touch on that briefly because I feel like we think when we push progress or make progress, I think Travis Kalanick is probably a really good yeah. example, um, former CEO of Uber. When we push pro- pro- progress, the ends justify the means. It's a very Machiavellian approach, but we think often, particularly those I find in innovation, in uh, high growth, scalable tech, uh, think that the consequences of breaking the rules or pushing the envelope ought not apply because we made enough progress. And what I posited, it ought be the inverse, right? I broke the rules. There are consequences for that. It may be that someone doesn't hold me to task or hold me accountable to the consequences because I've created enough progress. But that's not the default. That's the exception to the rule, right? We off, we operate as if that is the rule. If I create enough progress, there will be no consequences. I think we do well to invert that and say, I broke the rules. I'm susceptible to consequences. And maybe somebody will let me off. But if not, I broke the rules intentionally and knowingly and ought to be open and uh, susceptible to consequences. And so I, I just, I always find that, oh, but I did good. Don't hold me to task. It's, uh, no, you broke the rules. You also did good, and that's great, but you broke the rules, and we're going to punish that. And so I, I see that folks are uh, indignant when they're held to task to what ought to be the case, which is you broke the rules, here are the consequences, here's your punishment. Hey, when Stinson told you to talk to me about this, it was <laughs> as a feedback thing, not for the podcast. It's not a podcast. It's not. It's, this is recorded radio. All right. Okay. So for those of you who listened last week, you got a pirate coin. Your pirate coins are in the mail. For those of you who listened this week, we've been talking a little bit about uh, fatigue. You can get a free copy of Alan Dow, MD, Dr. Professor Alan Dow's mm-hmm. book called Thriving 23, which is all about fatigue. And if you think you're special for earning that book, just a reminder, we've been giving it away for free for the past month, <laughs> six weeks. So the same offer applies whether you have listened to this recorded radio or not. My name is Ace Colwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. And this is Envoy Recorded Radio. Thanks for tuning in.